May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. On April the 26th in 2006, six students from Taylor University in Indiana were traveling on I-69 when a semi-truck collided with their van, instantly killing five of the six aboard. The one who remained alive, a young woman, was in a coma, and she would be that way for more than five weeks. Among those killed was a, another young woman, blonde, looked very much like um, the woman that, they, that uh, survived. They identified the young woman as Laura Van Ryn. The, older, the other woman that they identified as Whitney Carrick. As you might imagine, the, um, the, the family of the young woman who passed away grieved intensely over the loss of their daughter. Um, they, uh, they had a, a funeral service for her. More than 1,400 people came to her funeral. The young woman who survived, her family sat vigil bedside, praying that she would wake up from this, um, this awful coma that she was in, that, that she would recover from her injuries and be returned to some sort of normalcy of life. About a month after the accident, um, Laura Van Ryn began to, uh, to talk in her sleep, showing the first signs that she was going to come out of the coma. But most of her words were unintelligible. And what they did understand didn't really make sense. She was saying the names of people that weren't part of her family in her inner circle. They, they were kind of confused by what she was saying. But they just attributed all of it to the, the trauma that she had. She began to wake up and, and recognize that there were people around, but she would misidentify them. Again, they attributed this to the trauma that she had suffered. A lot of other abnormalities about uh, the way that she was acting and reacting. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things was that she had a belly button piercing, and nobody could remember uh, her having this. And so they thought that was strange, but, you know, college students are college students, and so maybe they dismissed it. Well, um, Laura's roommate came in to see her one day and looked at her and was really disturbed, and she said to the nurse, this doesn't look like Laura at all. Of course, it's been a bad accident. You know, there are things happening. But then the nurse began to put all these things together. And so she did something that nobody had done for five weeks. She leaned down to the young woman laying in the hospital bed and said, What is your name? And Laura said, My name is Whitney. And they realized what had happened. Now, of course, fortunes were reversed. The family that was uh, grieving has now had this sudden time to rejoice. And this family who had thought that they had saved their daughter now had this time to mourn. And it seemed like a very cruel hoax. Only it was very much real. It was a case, a, a, a very typical case of mistaken identity. The person that they thought had survived had not. In fact, Laura Van Ryn had indeed perished in the accident. And the person that they were looking at, thinking was Laura, was Whitney Carrick. I think this has happened to all of us at one time or another. Not in this uh, obviously severe a case, but the case of mistaken identity is, is very normal. It's very customary. People, people see this all. I mean, you imagine yourself probably at a, at a concert or a festival or a play or somewhere, and you see somebody and you're sure it's Bob or Betty or Carla or whoever, and you go up to them and you're like, Bob, how are you? How about the Indians this year? And then you realize, you know, having blurted out a big long sentence, it's not Bob at all. And you kind of try to, and you know how you feel, don't you? You know, very sheepish and embarrassed. Oh, goodness, I'm so sorry. And so you, you kind of slip away. 
And it happens in another way, too. I mean, it might be a time where you think you recognize somebody, and you do. And you're at a restaurant, and it's some fella, and he's having an intimate dinner, and that's not his wife that he's eating with. And he's trying not to look at you because he knows you recognize him. Or you maybe remember the, the, the story in the Bible of Simon Peter, who on the night that Jesus was arrested followed him and is warming his hands by the fire, right? And a young girl says to him, Hey, you were one of them. You are one of his disciples. You were with that man called Jesus. And what does Peter say? No, you're mistaken. It's not me. A case of mistaken idea. You're wrong. He's betting on the fact that this young girl has had the same experience that you and I have had in millions. And in fact, I don't know anybody who has it. A case of mistaken identity. She might feel embarrassed, a little sheepish about this, so she's not going to say anything. And that's what we do when we're not 100% certain, don't we? We sort of avoid the embarrassment. We don't want to risk thinking that we know somebody that we, in fact, don't know. I thought about this little thought experiment and, and thought that this is something that I, I wanted us to feel because I think, in some ways, this is what Luke's gospel leads us to. If we can, if we can kind of somehow hold on to the feeling of, of this embarrassment, of mistaken identity, the uncertainty, if we can kind of hold on to that for just a minute, maybe Luke's gospel kind of comes alive in a little different way this morning. But I'm getting ahead of myself. About halfway through Luke's gospel, Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Perhaps you remember, he is transfigured, he's bright and shining there with Moses and Elijah are with him. And he comes down, and in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, he, Luke says this, Jesus, at this point, Luke 9.51, steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus comes down from that mountain, and he has one intention, that is to go to Jerusalem. Even though he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to come into direct conflict with both Jewish and Roman power structures. And this ultimately will lead in his death. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem knowing that it's going to cost him his life. But then we get to today's lesson. Fast forward 10 chapters to chapter 19. And here we are, Jesus finally making it to Jerusalem. He's right outside the city. He's about to enter. And he, in fact, sends for a, a taxi. You know, bring me this donkey. And they bring it, and he sits upon it. And you say to yourself, it seems like a pretty nice welcome. I mean, look what the people are doing. They're shouting, they're singing, they're, not in Luke's, but in, in Matthew, Mark, and John, they're waving palms, um, they're in Luke's gospel, they're throwing their coats down in front of them. It's a very festive occasion. This is an exciting day. They're shouting, Hosanna, they're praising God. Doesn't seem like it's an all bad thing to go to Jerusalem. Just a little backstory to this. 165 years before the birth of Jesus, um, the, uh, the people of Israel were, um, were invaded. Well, they weren't really invaded. They'd been invaded years before. They were captive to an army, a, a nation called, well, the Syrians, the Seleucid dynasty that was a remnant of Alexander the Great's army. And this Seleucid dynasty had captive, uh, captivated the southern kingdom of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem. And they sort of controlled as, a, as a, an occupying force, if you will. And there was this guy, his name was Judas Maccabeus, 165 years before Jesus. And Judas Maccabeus raised up this army, this little guerrilla army, and he drove what was then the most powerful army in the world, the Syrians, out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer, because he was such a tough fighter, 
came riding into Jerusalem the day after the Syrians left on a horse. And guess what the people did? Oh, you know, don't you? They started taking off their coats and they started throwing them on the road. They grabbed palm branches from the trees around them and started waving them. And here's what they shouted from Psalm 118. Hosanna! Save us, Lord! Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you say to yourself, now wait a minute. (laughs) That's in the gospel today. This is what they did when Jesus comes riding in. That's absolutely right. The similarities are unmistakable. They are, they're, they're virtually the same. Jesus is doing the same thing. Only one big difference. Judas the hammer drove the Syrians out of town before he came in. When Jesus comes riding into town, the Romans are still very much in control. But you cannot miss it. You cannot miss what is going on. The symbolism is so very powerful. The people are saying to Jesus, we expect you to do for us exactly what Judas Maccabeus did for them back then. We think that you can be the one to drive these Romans out. Drive this invading force out. Set us free to be the people of God like we always want to be. Only you know the rest of the story, don't you? You know the story. You've read the best the few pages ahead. He doesn't drive the Romans out. In fact, he doesn't evict the priestly uh, class from Jerusalem either. He doesn't tell the Sadducees to get moving. He doesn't remove the, the sanctimonious Pharisees from Israel. All those people stay in place. He doesn't do any of that. But it doesn't stop the people from hoping that he will. As they wave their palm branches, throw their coats down on the road in front of him, and shout and sing. Listen to Luke's gospel again. A whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King! Do you get this? They're saying to Jesus, you're not just some other really great guy. You know, it's not just that you're a fantastic preacher or that you're a miracle worker or that you're a healer or that you're any of these things. King of Israel. That's a pretty big deal. Blessed is the king. His disciples don't get much, but they get this, don't they? You see that? You see all the way through. They're making all kinds of boneheaded mistakes. They don't make one here. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying. He is saying, and and don't miss this either. Jesus has taken the initiative, right? You remember, he's the one who sent for the taxi. Hey, you two, go get that that donkey. I, I know where it is. I'll tell you where the owners are. Go get it and bring it to me. No one's ever sat on that one before. Jesus knows the symbolism. When he comes riding into town, everybody's going to get it. He knows it. He knows the story of Judas Maccabeus. Don't you think he does? He knows the story of of Zechariah chapter 9. You know he does, right? He knows what people are going to say and do. He, He absolutely not only anticipates it, he invites it. And his disciples get it. But not everybody gets it. Or at least not everybody likes it. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd. Oh, those dirty dog Pharisees, you know. You know when somebody says, and the Pharisees, everybody's like, oh, it's going to be bad, right? Don't forget, don't forget the Pharisees 
They are not evil people. They are the most religious, most devout people in Israel. They are the most, they are the most scrupulous about following the law. These are the vestry members. <laughs> These are the most, the most respected people in all of the country as far as religion goes. And what do these Pharisees say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. Knock it off. Enough of this nonsense. Do you think that they remember the story of Judas Maccabeus? Of course they do. Do they know the story of Zechariah chapter 9? Of course they do. What do they think? They think Jesus is not a king. And he better stop acting like one. This is ridiculous. This is nonsense. They are going to, people are going to mistake you for saying that you're a king. And we want you to stop it. I know you're way ahead of me on this one. I, I know I've, I've telegraphed this punch too much and laid too much of my hand out here. But here's the question to you and me, right? Which crowd are we in? Who's Jesus to you and to me? I mean, that question just kind of jumps right out in front of us. Are you the kind of person who would take off your coat when Jesus comes and let him on his donkey ride across it? You imagine when you pick up your coat. Do you ever think about when people picked up their coats after the end of it? Yeah. I mean, Dale was thinking about it. What happens when people pick their coats back up and put them on? Well, at the very least, there are probably hoof prints on them, right? <laughs> yeah, there might be a little bit else right there, too, huh? Oh, but you say, I would willingly let myself be a doormat for the king. Oh, good for you. But the Pharisees didn't respond the same way, did they? Stop this. Tell them to stop it. I'm assuming they didn't take off their coats at all. That they still had them on. They were pristine and clean. And here's the problem. Here's the rub. You know, the Pharisees were very comfortable with religion. They weren't anti-religious at all. They very much liked religion. They were about as religious as you could get, in fact. In every movie I've ever seen them, they always have the coolest hats, right? And they, I mean, they're all decked out with all this religious garb. They look fantastic. They're okay with religion. They're just not so okay with Jesus. And there's a lot of that going on in the world today. I think even in the church, there's a lot of that going on. There are men and women who, you know, wear very fine apparel. They look very, they look very religious. I mean, they look like me, you know, with these fancy digs on right here, a backwards shirt and crosses and colors and all that sort of thing. But don't want the, they want a single thing to do with Jesus. I've heard entire sermons preached. By people who were very um, high up in the church, in religion. And, and don't mention Jesus a single time. Because it's very okay to be religious. We just don't want Jesus. We want Him, in some ways, out of our lives and off our backs. To be religious without making Him our King. So, we have two, one of two choices. We can hail Him as King. We can... We can reject him and say, no, we want to be religious, but we don't want you. But here's what we cannot do. Here's what he will not let us do. He will not let us ignore him. Will he? He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing what Judas Maccabeus had done in the past, knowing what Zechariah chapter 9 says, and says to us, says to those first century Jews, says to us in the 21st century, now you tell me, what are you going to do with me? 
Am I going to be your king? Or do you want to settle for some kind of superficial religion? That's the question that comes to you and to me today. And the way that we answer that question makes all the difference in the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.